are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. Tonight, we are talking about alcohol withdrawal in the outpatient setting. So I know we've talked a lot about alcohol use disorders, so common, and this particularly is a really tricky subject. And we get this a lot, Paula. I think this is something that most providers run into and don't know what to do. It's always coming up. And it always hits you at the worst time too. Somebody always comes in in acute withdrawal at the worst time in a busy day, right? Exactly. And people need help, want help, can't go to the hospital, or you're in an area that doesn't have access to hospital-based withdrawal management. And so you're up against the wall or you work in a jail setting where people are withdrawing on you, comes up and it's a good kind of clinical skill set to have, which includes the ability to screen for patients who may have more complicated withdrawal than others, and then management of patients in the outpatient setting, and having the kind of discernment of when to bail and send people to a higher level of care or when to hold on to them. Yes, that is so important. So what we're going to talk about is just briefly review, and then we'll talk about setting criteria is so important. So the types of patients that you would consider doing in an outpatient or an ambulatory setting is really important. So we'll go through that criteria and then we'll talk about some of the medications that you can use in an outpatient setting. That's always important. So it's not just helping them through that acute period, but making sure that we keep them stable and keep them there. That's what we're all about is the long term too. We're in this for the long haul. Just as a reminder, our two things for identifying alcohol use disorders. Well, you know, we want to rec- you want to re- screen patients 18 years and older for unhealthy alcohol use. That's a recommendation from the USPSTF. There are several screening instruments that that are available, but the Audit C is a three-question test that you can use. It's pretty quick and easy. Or the single alcohol screening instrument is very useful. It's just one question and it has very good accuracy. So you could use either one of those. And if you want to delve in deeper, if you get a positive response, then you could use the full audit test, uh, which is the longer version, obviously, of the audit C. And that gives you um, 10 answers to more detailed questions, identifying whether or not patients may be at risk for alcohol use disorder, at which in which event you can use the DSM-5 and go through and see if patients actually meet diagnostic criteria for a use disorder, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe. And if they don't meet criteria for a use disorder, they may just meet be in the category of risky drinking or binge drinking, and then you can guide them. But for the purposes of this conversation, when you're treating patients who are going to have alcohol withdrawal, you're typically dealing with patients who don't just have risky drinking or binge drinking. They typically have more of a use disorder. And I would hazard to say severe use disorder or at least moderate, but most likely severe. What do you think? Yes. We want to be careful because sometimes even though somebody may have what we think lower amounts, they can still have severe alcohol withdrawal. And on that same spectrum, you can have someone with fairly heavy use 
and they may have even mild to moderate withdrawal. So that does not always qualify that this person's, you know, or predict that they're going to have the type of withdrawal. And so that's why it's important to picture about their overall health, physical and mental health, when you're looking at that setting of whether I would do this as an, in an outpatient setting, or does this person need to be inpatient? You know, that's such a good point. I'm really glad you said that. And that's exactly right. I didn't mean to mislead and say that only people who are daily heavy drinkers are at risk for withdrawal. Not at all. People can have varied withdrawal. And it's actually amazing to me. I think I've seen some of the worst withdrawal from people who are young adults who just drink, do more of a binge drinking pattern, but they do have a use disorder. They have both, right? So it's hard to predict who's, I mean, we can kind of predict who's going to have withdrawal syndrome, but not always. So you do want to screen for alcohol use in general, get an idea of how much people are drinking, and then, of course, delve into some of the criteria that gives you an indication of whether or not they're going to experience withdrawal and how severe that withdrawal might be. Often what happens, and this happens to me all the time, Paula, and as you as well, is patients show up in withdrawal and you're dealing with that. That's one. Then you want to really evaluate this person on how bad is it going to get? When you're evaluating a person, the first thing you're going to ask them is what they're drinking, how much they're drinking per day, and that daily drinking. Those are going to be predictors. And so you do take that into account. Absolutely. And then other things. Yeah, I mean, and I also would say it's important to ask people and patients to get a really good history of what their pattern of drinking is like as it relates to withdrawal symptoms. So do patients develop the shakes or sweats or anxiety in between drinking intervals? So if they drink really heavily at night, when's the next time they need to drink in order to feel better? For example, do they wake up with shakes and sweats or do they not feel that way again until the next evening or do they never feel that way and they just can go several days in between drinking? That gives you an idea of how quickly they, they're body might or might not start withdrawing. And if you have someone who says, well, I can't get through the night, I'm I'm sipping vodka during the night because otherwise I'm awake all night and my heart's racing and I'm sweaty. Or someone who says, I have to have two white claws. Let me tell you, everyone's just drinking white claws. It's Seltzer City, but especially in Utah. But they're like, I have to drink two white claws but in order to get to work. Otherwise, I'm too sweaty and, and tremulous to go to work. That gives you an indication that they're at high risk for withdrawal without alcohol for eight or 10 or 12 hours, their body starts to manifest withdrawal. So I think you've got to delve in a little bit. Um, just like you said, Darlene, the history of how much they're drinking uh, and how much they've been drinking, how long, but also what's their pattern of drinking? Uh, do they only drink at night? Is it all day? Do they start drinking at 3 p.m.? Do they drink in the morning, etc.? Yes, and there are two scales that you're going to be using when you're looking at alcohol withdrawal and that severity. And we're getting this information from the ASAM Clinical Practice Guideline on Alcohol Withdrawal Management. It's quite a lengthy PDF, but I highly suggest you pull this up online. If you do any alcohol withdrawal management, inpatient or outpatient, kind of like your Bible. I liken this to tip 63 for opiate management, right, Paula? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. What they recommend is you want to use what we call the pause scale or you're going to, or the CWA scale. So this is the patient 
alcohol withdrawal scale and you are looking at what symptoms they're having and then you're going to review their risk factors. Yeah, the pulse scale, um, this is very helpful. Well, it's helpful and been validated, has high sensitivity and specificity for identifying complicated withdrawal. And basically it has a cutoff. It's a zero to 10 scale with a cutoff of four. And so if your patient is at least a four or more, they really are high risk for complicated withdrawal. And there's two parts to the scale. So the severity scale has part A, which has some threshold criteria, and then part B, which is based on the patient interview. Sorry. And then there's, a, there's an objective section two, part C, which is based on clinical evidence. So, you know, part A is a historical question of have you consumed consumed alcohol in the last 30 days? So basically that gets people into the scale. So if they answer that yes to that, then they're in the threshold or did they have a patient, did they have a blood alcohol level upon admission? Because if they come in and they, they blew a 0.300 or their blood alcohol was 0.378 or 0.250, then they automatically qualify for evaluation of the scale as well. So someone may have only been drinking once or twice in the month and be very low on this risk, but then they'll probably score very low the rest of the scale. This kind of scale is very helpful for certain hospital-based services like trauma service or orthopedic orthopedic services where they're going to be admitting patients for several days. Well, I guess not trauma, but orthopedics, for example, they're going to admit someone for a knee or a hip replacement, and they can use this to identify if someone's even going to go into withdrawal at all. But anyway, part B is asking the, into the patient any of the questions like, have you ever experienced alcohol withdrawal in the past? Have you had a seizure, alcohol withdrawal seizure? Have you ever had delirium tremens? Have you ever been in treatment for alcohol? You know, you've been in alcohol rehabilitation treatment and have you ever had blackouts, etc. And then part C is based on the clinical evidence. So if they have a blood alcohol level on presentation greater than 200, or if there's any evidence of increased autonomic activity, such as a heart rate greater than 120 beats per minute, a tremor, sweating, agitation, nausea, then they get a point. So basically, if they answer or get a point for any of those up to 10, then they actually would score would would qualify for high risk if it's four or over if it's under three three or under then you would just want to look and see what they answered yes to and make your decision as to whether or not they're high risk by going through some of the other criteria that we're going to talk about now what are some of the other things we want to um, look into i think it's great obviously we use this inpatient frequently when you do this outpatient this gives you many of those screening criteria that you need the other thing you want to look is you're that's going to answer a lot of your questions that you need to ask before you proceed with an ambulatory management of alcohol withdrawal. You want to make sure this person has somebody that's going to be there with them. So they need to have a stable caregiver. And this is somebody who is not drinking that can manage them going to be going to work and leaving the person alone. So this has to be someone that's there 24 seven to monitor the person. I really prefer that the person can be there at the visit when we are seeing the person so that we can give them the instructions. If they've had severe alcohol withdrawal, which you are getting from that pause scale, you need to consider that, that an exclusion criteria. 
if they have already failed previous ambulatory treatment for really any reason, you really need to think about heavy use. So if you've already got somebody who's already having like a fifth of vodka per day, this is listed in the ASAM guideline, more than eight drinks per day. This person is already considered high risk of severe alcohol withdrawal. This person has already an active psychiatric condition. They're already suicidal. And that's common, right? This, we would not typically try and manage alcohol withdrawal in the outpatient setting in someone who's actively suicidal or actively psychotic. It's very difficult to (laughs) determine. And Paula, I mean, we both kind of laugh, but we see this. I, I see this frequently. You can't determine when somebody's going from just their psychosis to delirium tremors, or they are already in DTs. You can't determine that. That's why you're not going to try to manage this outpatient. And alcohol is already a very difficult and dangerous withdrawal. If you have multiple substances involved, it's very challenging. So that's another one you really need to consider. And then if you have a patient who you know is not going to be able to follow up with you, so either their housing situation, their transportation, they can't come back to your clinic. It's recommended in the ASAM guideline that this person needs to come back to your clinic daily for five days. If they can't present or they are not, you're not able to have a video chat with them and and see them and manage them, then that would be another criteria where you would not want to do this. So other things. Well, I would say if your patient's over 65, that's also actually per the ASAM guideline. But um, even in my clinical practice, I begin to be weary of patients who are over 55 or 60 because patients who've been drinking heavily typically are older than their dated age in terms of their risk. So older patients are much more at risk for complicated withdrawal. Yeah, and I didn't mention medical, like, you know, because that's when you run into those concurrent medical conditions over 65 or under, if they have some other serious medical conditions, you can't manage that. So yeah, you're absolutely right, Paula. Yeah, and I'm particularly cautious with patients who have chronic lung disease, heart disease, or neurological disease in particular, because they, you know, you're giving them CNS depressants in the setting of an autonomic hyperactive state. So you have to kind of sedate someone who is already maybe at risk for respiratory depression or cardiac arrhythmias and strain or neurological kind of vulnerability in terms of seizure risk. So you need to take those risk factors into consideration when you're going to be managing them in the outpatient setting. And then, of course, you want to understand that some people may really have impaired liver function. You may or may not know that. If you're their primary care doctor, you might be aware of their liver function, but you might not. And a lot of the medications that we use for management of alcohol withdrawal are not metabolized very well in people who have hepatic dysfunction. And so they have prolonged effect from the medication. In a hospital setting, you know, this becomes evident when, you know, they're sedated and drowsy, ataxic, falling over, desatting. But if you're sending them home and you're not be able to witness that in real time or overnight, it becomes a little bit more worrisome. I would also say it's really important to take a very good history of what their alcohol withdrawal looked like in the past. Now, you already said this. I just want to elaborate on it a little bit. I would, I ask two things. One, how many times have you gone into alcohol withdrawal because of the kindling effect? So the more times a patient has had alcohol withdrawal syndrome or alcohol withdrawal symptoms, the more likely their withdrawal syndrome will become severe as they, as they go on. So the brain becomes more vulnerable 
people every time it undergoes alcohol withdrawal and is more likely to react and be more frail. So you're more likely to have a seizure event, hallucinosis, delirium, etc. And so you want to understand, has this person had, you know, 12, 20 withdrawal events or have they just been drinking nonstop, never tried to stop, in which case you don't know what their withdrawal is going to be like, but they haven't not as much at risk for kindling. Yeah, that is so important, Paula. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just to to reiterate that, that asking them about their previous attempts and how many times, because mm-hmm. I think it's really important for people to understand it's, it's going to be, if you're lucky, at least the same, but more likely worse, that it only gets worse, it doesn't get better. Yes, exactly. And I always tell folks that like, it's never going to get better than this. It's only going to get worse. And that's the other thing is you want to ask exactly what alcohol withdrawal looks like and feels like because people who uh, drink heavily, as we know, and who um, kind of, uh, they tolerate being blackout drunk, pass out drunk, very sick with hangovers and withdrawal, May it may become normalized to them. Like for you and I, the thought of vomiting all day, sweating all night, having tremors for days sounds just awful, but to them it just might be a cycle of life they're used to living. So I always say, well, what do you feel like? What do you experience? Tell me what it, you actually have when you have when you are not able to access your alcohol, because it might be different from asking people, well, when you've tried to quit before, because they may not have and they may be embarrassed. But if they're not able to have alcohol because of incarceration or lack of access, they might be able to tell you, well, I start sweating, then I start shaking, and I might have vomiting, diarrhea. And then I always check three things. One, do you ever hear things or see things like hear a dog barking, hear a song playing? Do you ever feel, are you ever confused? And people tell you you're confused, like you didn't know what day it was. You didn't know where you were. You didn't know which bed you were in, or have you ever had a seizure? And that kind of tries to tease out if people really have been having the more, what we call complicated withdrawal, which would be any of those things. And then of course, delirium tremens. Asking patients if they have a history of delirium tremens is a bit tricky because in alcohol world, and in the lay public world, DTs is analogous to just tremors and withdrawal. But we know that delirium tremens is a much more severe end stage manifestation of alcohol withdrawal syndrome that's marked by autonomic hyperactivity and delirium. And so I say, okay, if they say, oh yeah, I had the DTs, you ask them, well, what was that like for you? Were you in the ICU? Do you remember it? And if they say, oh no, no, I just had such bad shakes, then no, they didn't have DTs. They just had severe withdrawal or moderate withdrawal with severe shaking. So I try and just determine those things so that I know kind of what we're in for. And that's true for both patients being taken care of in the inpatient and in the outpatient setting. Of course, here we're trying to determine if people are even going to be able to stay in the outpatient setting. But those are some of the things I really want to make sure I understand. And then I also, you mentioned this, we want to know what other drugs they're taking, but I especially want to know what other CNS depressants they're taking, if they're taking any benzos or any other any other drugs that may exacerbate the withdrawal syndrome if they're not going to be taking those. Well, one other thing, okay, so we used to talk about this all the time with uh, learners. Alcohol Alcohol withdrawal, you know, we learn about this in medical school and residency. You see this nice graph of when withdrawal occurs, right? Oh, okay, you have, you know, you have tremor and sweat starting at four hours, and then you might have seizures 
anywhere between 12 and, you know, 48 hours, etc. Well, the truth is that's true kind of in a linear fashion, but that's not always how it works. And you might have a patient who's still intoxicated and has a blood alcohol level of 200 or 300 who's actually in withdrawal. And that's because their receptor occupancy is used to a certain level of alcohol presence. And as the alcohol level goes down, they begin to go into withdrawal. And that may not necessarily be zero. So what's blood alcohol level zero plus 12 hours for some people in order to go into withdrawal might be blood alcohol level minus 200 and two hours after the last drink. So if they're used to living at 400, then they at 200, they're going to start feeling really sick. Does that make sense? And that means that you might be seeing some mixed pictures of um, withdrawal and intoxication. And if you see that in your office, if you see someone who's still got alcohol on board, or if you have evidence of alcohol on board with a blood alcohol level or breathalyzer, and they're already shaking, nauseated, have sweats, man, there's that person is definitely at risk for complicated withdrawal and would not yes. be a good candidate for outpatient management because you're you're in for a deep dive when they completely empty out and have no alcohol on board. And you better be ready to really top them up with a medication or a cocktail of medications that stabilize that GABA and glutamate systems. No, that is such an important point. And it's, I think it's important to not miss that. It, sometimes they joke about it in the ER, but it's like really those patients are high risk risk of really severe withdrawal. Summarizing, patient selection is is key. And then it's education. Really make sure that you're educating the patient and their caregiver. If you see these signs, then we stop, you're going to the hospital. And typically, you kind of jump in, explain to them what DTs are, and we just give them a very simple language. So typically how I explain it is if they start becoming more confused, if you start having severe sweating, if you start, obviously we tell them seizures. If they become overly sedated, if they have either really high pulse or really low pulse, they're not doing well and they need to go to the hospital. What other things, Paula? Yes, I agree with all of those. I say if you have a lot of vomiting or diarrhea that you can't, that doesn't stop with the outpatient medication, you should go. Confusion, which is what you said, and then hallucinations. If they're seeing people or children or animals in their room, not that children aren't people, but you know what I mean. And if they are hearing things like hearing, we talked a lot, so many patients will say that they hear a radio playing or a movie playing that's not or they hear someone calling their name, anything that indicates that the withdrawal is becoming more complicated. So hallucinosis, confusion, which doesn't necessarily need to be full on delirium, but confusion, and then just really severe symptoms in spite of the medication. So severe tremor, uh, diaphoresis, nausea, vomiting, and or palpitations. And then you said low pulse too, or sedation, then you just need to bail go to the hospital so that they can take over and manage with more aggressive treatment and monitoring. Okay. So medications, Paula, in the inpatient setting, it's always benzodiazepines first line. In the outpatient setting, we do have some other medications that you can use and we tend to do that. And we'll talk a little bit more why, but yeah, Paula, if you want to jump in. Yeah. I mean, I think really tricky in the outpatient setting. I mean, even though benzodiazepines are indicated, they are are the first line for managing alcohol withdrawal. They carry a lot of risk, especially when you can't guarantee patients won't 
drink on top of them, or that patients won't have an adverse reaction to the benzodiazepine you're giving, either over-sedation or poor metabolism, or like we said, using them with something else. Now, if you really do have a chaperone and helping give the medication, etc., that should lower the risk. However, it doesn't lower the risk of having bottles of benzodiazepines around when and if a patient resumes drinking, which I think we've all seen clinically so many times, is you end up with a patient who returns to drinking and is still taking lorazepam or diazepam. Many, many times. Yeah, (laughs) or Librium. And we see a lot of patients who get discharged from the emergency department with a taper written for chlordiazepoxide, and they maybe take it for two or three days and then resume drinking. And they've got lots of Librium on board from the previous two or three days, and it's still being metabolized. I, I personally do not use benzodiazepines in the outpatient setting. It's not how I was trained. I have this cutoff that if someone has a CWA greater than 10, or if they meet any of the other criteria we just discussed, like they have a history of complicated withdrawal, they're older than 65, they have medical comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera, they have electrolyte abnormalities, they're dehydrated. I know that they're going to need benzodiazepines or more monitoring, and I insist that they need inpatient management of their withdrawal or level two management, which may not necessarily be a hospital, but it could be like a freestanding um, withdrawal management center as such are cropping up around the place or a psychiatric hospital, etc. But if they meet criteria, in my mind, like they're relatively low risk for severe alcohol withdrawal, and they have a safe and responsible adult who's going to monitor them and bring them back to the clinic to be monitored over the next couple of days, then I will consider using a non-benzodiazepine regimen. And in fact, you know, in the residential programs I work with, Darlene, we now use this all the time as well, because we get lots of people, unfortunately, who show up not adequately um, withdrawn from alcohol or at risk for withdrawal and they can't go to the hospital first, or they arrive on your doorstep two days after their last drink with a prescription for seven days of Librium. And because we're in a group residential setting, I don't want to have bottles of, you know, Librium and Ativan around the residential program. I absolutely routinely now use these non-benzodiazepine regimens with huge success and And they're mentioned in the ASAM clinical practice guideline and also this article that we've been referencing from the AFP. No, I agree, Paula. I do the same in my practice. We do not use benzodiazepines outpatient. So let's talk about some of those medications. We have gabapentin and we have carbamazepine are the two the most common ones that we use. And those are well studied. They have good evidence that supports that. And yeah, which one? I think, Paula, you prefer gabapentin, correct? And what kind of doses are you using typically? Yeah, I use gabapentin as first line just because carbamazepine is a little bit more of a problematic medication in, in terms of its drug-drug interactions and the fact that it kind of self-metabolizes. But gabapentin also seems to really help with people's anxiety. So, and it's it's easy to order and, and you know, it seems to be less problematic for hyponatremia. However, carbamazepine, I do use that as well. But for gabapentin, I, I don't have a standing protocol. I have an idea of what what the range is, but then depending on what the patient's been drinking, I try and start with what I think will be will be good coverage for them. Typically, it's around the order of 400 milligrams TID to start. Could be more than that if someone's drinking a lot more, or it could be less than that. You can also load people up with a high dose kind of all at once. But um, so say that I have a patient who I had this guy actually. He was sent to me by his insurance 
insurance. I thought this was really cheeky. His insurance company sent him to me. He was drinking about 18 to 24 beers a day, which, you know, that's a lot, really. And they did not cover inpatient medically managed detox withdrawal from alcohol. And they said, well, we want you to, you know, you're an addiction specialist. You can just detox him or manage his withdrawal in an outpatient setting. Even though he had been drinking this amount for years and years and years, and he actually was a smoker, he had asthma, he met some criteria, but he otherwise was actually quite low risk in spite of his volume. So I'm like, well, I don't know about this, but I guess we'll go for it and then we'll monitor you very closely. So I put him on gabapentin and we did 600 milligrams QID for three days and he came back every day to see me when he did this. He would just come in. Uh, He didn't actually even do doctor's visit. He did a nurse visit. So it got blood pressure, well, got vital signs and CWAS scales every time he came in. And of course, he would have come up and seen me personally if any of those were out of the parameters I set. And he did really great. I've had people who started on lower than that, but the study dose has been around 1200 milligrams total a day. So anywhere, you know, from 400 milligrams TID down to 300 milligrams TID if people are not as tolerant. And then I taper it down about every three days. So I'll do initial dose for three days and then go to another dose for two to three days and then go to another dose for two to three days. And I typically have the taper last about seven to eight days. So I'll do 300, for example, 400 milligrams TID days one to three, and then 200 milligrams days four, five, six TID, and then maybe I'll just do 100 milligram BID for another day or two, depending on how the patient's doing. But honestly, I just kind of go with how the patient is and what their tolerance is. What about you? No, very similar. Getting that good history when when their last drink was, where they are on their CWA score, then I'll determine that. Frequently, I will get a few that will come in my office and they're already two or three days out. And so some of their withdrawals symptoms, they might be peaking already at that point. And so I sometimes won't start them as high if they're already kind of below where we're maybe already at like just eight or nine. I'm on their CWA. You Like you said, Paula, sometimes you'll start them a little bit lower and then just quickly taper them over that week, depending on how they're responding. And as you're following up with them, they really will sometimes just taper themselves. Exactly. And I think, I don't know, I really love objective data. And I really, really like following heart rate and blood pressure because it's a measure of autonomic hyperactivity. Temperature actually is also a very good tool, but typically only when people are really ill, because once someone's temperature starts going up, you're really in trouble. That should never be happening in the outpatient setting. But if you know you're kind of hitting it right, if you give them a starting dose, a regimen of gabapentin and their heart rate and blood pressure come down and are in more of a normal range, um, if they're too low, then you may be over-medicating them. But if they're still bopping around in the 180, 190, 200 over, you know, 100 or 120 range for their blood pressure and their tachycardic, they need either IV hydration or more oral hydration. Plus, they need a much more aggressive, higher dose non-benzodiazepine regimen, or they need to go to the hospital and be treated with benzodiazepines. So I monitor those really closely. And and you can use adjunctive medication to help with that autonomic hyperactivity like clonidine, but I really discourage it. And it's not just me. I mean, the literature discourages it because if you're not using the first-line medications to stabilize that GABAergic system and you're trying to treat the symptoms or the signs of withdrawal, you're going to miss the boat and people will progress. 
progress. So choose a starting dose. Total dose of 1,200 milligrams a day is typically adequate or a goal. You might need a little bit more. You might need a little bit less for gabapentin. You can just keep them on that dose for a couple of days, divided TID or QID, and then begin to go down. Some patients feel so much better or much more stable on it. You can keep them on it for weeks because we actually have good evidence that gabapentin reduces return to drinking and heavy drinking days. And so you don't need to be in too much of a hurry getting people off of it if they're resistant to tapering. And then of course, if they're not doing well, you want to either increase the dose or decide whether or not to admit them. That's great. And I I like how you said that. I love that really paying attention to that objective data. And I agree. I do the same thing, really watching their vitals because it, it does, it really helps you sometimes guide that medication that are they really responding and am I giving them enough? And like you said, and also, am I giving too much? Do do we need to taper a little bit? And that's what the literature supports. It's really important that you're doing follow-up. The other medications, carbamazepine, you already touched on that. It can be used as a monotherapy. I I don't think I've used it very much. I think I've only used it when I have some patients who've told me they've either had reactions or issues with gabapentin. So that's just not an option for them. You said it's self-metabolizer. It does have more drug-drug interaction. So just be aware of that. And then at the same time, it's very helpful. It really does work and it can be really helpful in the right person. What I've been finding clinically is gabapentin is such a common medication now is that you often get patients coming in who need help come to your clinic or come to your facility who need help with uh, withdrawal management from alcohol who are already on 1,200 milligrams a day of gabapentin or or 1,800. So then what do you do? You know, you can't really use gabapentin to treat their alcohol withdrawal if they already have gabapentin in the background. I mean, you can increase it, but you have to be careful of, you know, renal creatinine clearance, which by the way, you need to do labs in the outpatient setting on anyone you're going to be doing an alcohol withdrawal management on so that you know what their baseline liver and renal function are and if they're hyponatremic, hypokalemic, or hypomagnesemic, because that is going to contribute to complicated withdrawal. If you have someone who's got low potassium, low sodium, low magnesium, they're much more likely to have a complicated withdrawal. So make sure you're following that. But back to carbamazepine, it can be very helpful um, to use as an adjunct to someone who's already on an anti-seizure medication or if they're on a GABAergic medication like gabapentin or Lyrica. So uh, that's when I've used it. And I've used it also with patients who don't have insurance and are self-pay and carbamazepine is dirt cheap and very effective. And yes. you can kind of have powerful effect in a shorter amount of time. This is what I found. So you can, gabapentin, I like to kind of string the taper out over, like we just said, seven, eight, nine days, maybe longer. But carbamazepine, you can do a carbamazepine taper over four or five days. And people people actually feel fairly good. So that's something to keep in your pocket. Now, the psychiatrists of of our world, they often are like, oh my gosh, can't believe you're using carbamazepine, especially at the doses we use for treating alcohol withdrawal, because they're used to using it much lower doses with much more caution, and they're using it maintenance, obviously, for bipolar disorder. So when I worked at a psychiatric hospital, the psychiatrists would always be having heart failure when I would be using carbamazepine for alcohol withdrawal. But I'd say, I'm only using it for four days don't worry. And I'm watching their sodium and we're not going to even do levels because we're just giving it to them and then, and then taking it away. So 
that's just something to put out there that if you're using 200 milligrams carbamazepine QID right off the bat, it's because this person has a very tolerant brain to, you know, to the CNS depressant, which was alcohol. They typically tolerate that dose very, very well. Unlike you or I, if we gave you that much carbamazepine, you'd be completely snowed. And then of course you taper it quite rapidly. Like I go the next day, 200 milligrams TID, the next day, 200 milligrams BID. And on the fourth day, 100 milligram BID and then stop. And don't use carbamazepine in pregnant females. It does yeah. have that in labeling. So just and be I aware would, of that. Yeah. I mean, I would say if you have a pregnant person, I wouldn't ever manage alcohol withdrawal no. in the outpatient setting anyway, but you'd want to admit them and use benzodiazepines and have the help of, you know, like do it in the inpatient setting. Maternal setting fetal medicine. To, yeah, <laughs> typically. <Yes. laughs> yeah, yeah. Or do it yourselves if you know what you're doing. But anyway, that's my spiel on carbamazepine. Do talk about valproic acid. Generally, ASAM recommends that as more of an adjunctive rather than a monotherapy. I've used it as both. Most of the time, if I have someone with very mild who's already maybe several days into it, because again, Paula, sometimes we get patients who kind of maybe more protracted withdrawal symptoms. It can be very helpful there. Or somebody like what you just said, they come in and they're already on gabapentin and you're like, now what do I do? I sometimes, I guess, go to that valproic acid before I go to carbamazepine. And maybe that, tell, if, do you do that? I do because I think it's so effective. Yes. And it's particularly, well, I'm getting off on a tangent, but I'm finding like, so the longer I worked on a detox unit, the more I started to use valproic acid just for a short term, but as an adjunct for yeah. really complicated withdrawal, especially benzodiazepine withdrawal. But we'd have people who would get this kind of fuzzy delirium that just was difficult to clear. And you you run into that horrible place where the more benzos you give, the more confused they got. But then if you withdraw the benzos, then they get autonomic hyperactivity. So you're kind of flirting with delirium tremens with some folks, especially if they have a mixed withdrawal syndrome, like they're coming off of alcohol and alprazolam, and they were using phenibit and kratom and opioids. They just are confused, delirious, sick, autonomically hyperactive, need buprenorphine buprenorphine and they've got so many things going on rather than just give them more and more um, lorazepam I add in some valproic acid and boy it seems to stabilize them really right away and I have used it quite commonly as for monotherapy as well in the right person and it can be it's very very effective and again my sweet psychiatrist just want to pass out when I tell them I put someone on 2,000 milligrams just right out the bat of Depakote, 1,000 BID. And, but then I taper them quite quickly. Um, I put them on that for a few days, make sure that they're stable, and then taper it. And of course, you don't want to use this in, in women who may be pregnant. But if you don't think anyone's pregnant and you're doing it for a short amount of time, they have contraception that's reliable. And you're getting that urine pregnancy test when you're getting your labs and we're checking liver enzymes as your initial baseline labs. So that's again, before you proceed, you're going to get your routine labs just like you would when someone's inpatient. So you need to have all that available as part of your initial criteria. Benzodiazepines are listed as an option, but like I said, Paula and I, I think we have had so many negative experiences. We we just don't use those. That's we I think we both just have had that kind 
kind of cutoff. It doesn't mean you can't. I tend to lean towards if you are going to go that route, you have to have clear guidelines that this person already does not have a benzodiazepine dependence or abuse history. They do not have concurrent use of other CNS depressants, and they have to have very strict guidelines of how you're dosing, and they have to have a really good support person. And it does recommend this in the clinical, the ASAM clinical guidelines that you only give them enough until you see them again. So you may, so if, especially if you're dosing a long acting one, you may only give them three pills. So it's okay for them to pick up a prescription every day. That's far more appropriate than what we're seeing where you have patients who are given really 10, 15, 20 pills and yeah, they go home and use two or three days worth and then return to drink and then they're using both. And that's unfortunately far more common. And so we need to stop that practice. Be incredibly cautious about that. But this is just the advice from Paula and I, but between us combined, this is 20 plus years of experience. Generally, it's not worked out well for us benzodiazepines. And we have we have done it. We've made the mistakes and we're going to tell you, don't make those mistakes. <laughs> We've, we've done that ourselves many times and it has not worked out well, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I remember I had one of my, one of my patients that, oh, she just had the worst alcohol use disorder, you know, just really struggled with it. And I don't know how after just admitting her for medical, medically managed withdrawal, and then she wouldn't, you know, she'd go to treatment maybe for a few days and then leave and, or would refuse to go to treatment and then didn't want to go into medically managed withdrawal management. It was so hard to manage her. Somehow she finagled a prescription of, I'm putting it on her. It's totally me. Somehow I gave her a prescription of benzodiazepine to her for use to do at home. I don't know why I did this. And invariably, she just used it and resumed drinking and had a terrible fall, hit her face. I was so worried she was going to have a brain bleed. Anyway, I was just like, I, I shouldn't have done that. I put her in harm's way by agreeing to get, agreeing to give her that medication. Now, that's not saying that some patients use their medication appropriately and do very well, etc. I just, yeah, I just don't do it. Just speaking of a few other things I was just thinking about in terms of instructions, when people are, besides giving them the medications and telling them to come back the next day for a blood pressure check, a CWA, et cetera, and a heart rate check and stay with their chaperone. Encourage people to really hydrate. So stay hydrated. You might provide them with some other comfort medications like some nausea medication, something for headaches, and maybe something to help them with sleep. Although I typically don't give them any sleep medication because I don't want it to interact with gabapentin or carbamazepine or anything like that. But you can also make sure... And our thiamine. We give... always given some exactly. thiamine. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. And don't ever forget to put them on thiamine and folic acid. And I typically just choose a multiple vitamin with folic acid and give them thiamine separately. And then um, there's no indication or no evidence to support the prophylactic use of magnesium, but you can encourage them to eat foods that are high in potassium and high in magnesium and low in sodium that they'll feel better if they eat those kinds of foods anyway, while they're going through withdrawal. And sometimes you need to really encourage people people because anorexia is part of the withdrawal syndrome. So those are just some other recommendations you want to cover that people are are taking. Oh, absolutely. Don't 
yes, do not forget to give them some thiamine. Do you just tell them stay on the thiamine? Uh-huh. I, with our chronic relapsers, I just tell them this is just your with your multivitamin, just stay on this pill for life. Uh, the literature sometimes just says at least give them three to five days. Yeah, there's several recommendations, like you said, a short course, 30 day course. There's some literature that suggests 90 days. But I agree if someone's going to, the chronic relapsers should just be on thiamine to minimize their risk of Wernicke's encephalopathy. Absolutely. Finally, our goal, obviously, just briefly, we want to make sure that we prevent return to use. So don't forget, you can start naltrexone on that first visit. You've ruled out already that they don't have an opiate use disorder. You can confirm that with a urine drug screen that you do there in your office. If naltrexone's not appropriate, consider our other medications, a acamprosate. And then on days five to seven, you can consider adding disulfiram if the patient, I do sometimes both, right? Those can go good together as well. I think this is very common. A lot of patients can get over this, but what we're trying to do is not keep just going withdrawal, return to use withdrawal. We want to stop this cycle. So make sure when you're sending them home, you're giving them something to help them with cravings and reduce their risk of relapse. Right. And and not just pills, like throw them to treatment if they're willing to go, um, yes. refer them to 12-step facilitation or AA, which has really the best evidence. Um, and also, if you have the capacity in your organization to connect them to a peer, peer-based coaching is often offered for free in communities. And some peers may even be able to come to your office and, and just talk to your patient while they're going through withdrawal provide some support either in person or virtually. And there's huge evidence to support the efficacy of this. And I mean, who doesn't want that kind of support? I mean, if, you know, I'm a celiac. When I first got diagnosed with celiac, it was so helpful to talk to someone else with celiac disease, right? They just said, hey, look, you know, don't worry, there's good pizza down here at this restaurant. And that's such a silly example, but it's really helpful to have peers. And then of course, man, referral to whatever level of treatment people are willing to engage in. And then of course, our them medication-assisted treatment. I absolutely agree with you, Darlene, 100%. No, absolutely. And it's really important. You know, they're coming in and they may just be seeing the nurse those five days, but usually you're seeing them for a follow-up visit on days five to seven. Patients may not be mentally able to engage and really think about sometimes some of these treatment options about, hey, yes, let's get you involved in peer support. Let's really think about it. Because I get a lot of this from providers. Well, you know, I gave them a referral. I'm like, well, give it to them again. So even though you did that on the first visit and they may have not very receptive to it, make sure you follow up when the person's not sick, when their sensorium's clear and they're feeling much more themselves, you're, they're going to be far more receptive. Yes, those are great recommendations. I totally agree with that. Yes. So in conclusion, make sure patient selection and screening is key. So using the predictor of alcohol withdrawal severity scale, use that, know it, that really will help you. And then have your go-to medications, know those. So polonized gabapentin, you do have carbamazepine and dalproic acid. Don't forget to get a really good history. That's going to be your best key, really, is to ask people what their withdrawal was like in the past. 
how many times they've had withdrawal, if they've had complicated withdrawal. And then if they meet any of those other criteria, like they're pregnant, they're older, they have other co-occurring diseases, then, you know, they're just not appropriate to manage in the outpatient setting. You know, you're going to turf them, turf them to a higher level of care. And then if you do decide to do it in the outpatient setting, have a responsible adult with them, see them back frequently. And by that, we mean every day initially to make sure that they don't have high hyperactivity um, autonomically and that they're not confused or decompensating. Give them really good guidelines about when to go to the emergency room. And then once they're feeling better and more stable, be sure you follow up and give them resources and you provide treatment options with medications for cravings like naltrexone, acamprosate, disulfiram, or some of the off-label medications, and then also refer them to whatever treatment they may be interested in, like AA, formal IOP, PHP, residential treatment, whatever level of care they can engage in. Fantastic. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.